All right, we take up our study of Baptist distinctives again. And today I will begin to take up yet another matter, another point of Baptist distinctive. We have now covered in some small length uh, through these lectures, we have covered the topic of the sole authority of Scripture. We have covered in some length uh, the Baptist distinctive of demanding a regenerate church membership. We have discussed in some length baptism, its mode and subject. And with in connection with that, we've discussed uh, church membership. And we have covered also the Baptist distinctive, our distinctive of the Lord's Supper, communion, breaking of bread, those characteristics of it which are peculiar to Baptists. We've talked about those. Now, I, I acknowledge that uh, when you take up the subject, the big broad subject of Baptist distinctives, uh, that we, I'll say again something I said in an earlier lecture. Not only is there not unanimity as to exactly what are, how many, how many Baptist distinctives there are. Some put some uh, certain points together, others don't. Uh, it's not a point of controversy, but it's just a matter of for you to know there are different opinions as to exactly what the number is. And there's also the difference in the order. Uh, I have chosen the order that I have chosen, but others have chosen a different order. Uh, I think as to the matter of order in, for, in teaching the Baptist distinctives, there's only one thing that I believe is uh, uh, absolutely must be maintained in order, and that is uh, at the top of the list must begin with the uh, sole authority of the Scriptures. That That is the foundation on which all our doctrine rests. And so I think that if you're going to teach a, a series in Baptist distinctives, it would be absolutely requisite of you to begin with the, the, the tenet of, of sola scriptura uh, that the scriptures alone will be that which speaks. In fact, uh, nothing else should be entertained. No other subject should be entertained until we are settled and agreed on having the scriptures be our sole source for authority. Uh, we have, along the way, we have uh, openly entertained and I think answered uh, honest objections from those who are the opponents of our doctrine. We do not shy from entertaining other men's views and taking up their arguments. We don't shy from that. There are multitudes of 
uh, types of Baptists, if I could use that expression, types of Baptists who, who will not do that, who will not take up or even entertain the uh, views of others, but we certainly don't shy from that. Truth has no, truth has nothing to fear. So I want us now to turn to yet another uh, Baptist distinctive on which volumes have rightly been written, and that is the subject of religious liberty or the right, civil, put that in parentheses, the civil right of freely practicing religious liberty. Now, we're not talking here about that doctrine that's our, our, our confession of faith and any other good confessions address the matter of liberty of conscience. We're not talking about that doctrine at all. Liberty of conscience is a, is a completely different subject. That's not the liberty we're talking about. We're talking about religious liberty in the civil realm. Civil religious liberty. Jeter, in his book that I'll read from in a moment, Jeter, on this particular Baptist distinctive, uh, calls it religious freedom. That's just the terminology he employs in his book. Now, it must be noted before you would take up a discussion of religious liberty, civil religious liberty, that this is not religious toleration. There's a difference between religious liberty and religious toleration. Of course, there have been many great theses written on it, Books written on it. I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not going to try to, to, uh, spend a lot of energy on that particular distinction, but you understand the basics. Religious toleration in the civil realm is a situation where the powers that be reserve to themselves the authority to decide who may practice their religion, when, where, and how. That is religious toleration. Religious liberty says that civil realm has no right in governing these matters at all. We reject, we reject the notion that the civil government has right to exercise any, exercise itself in any way in the realm of our practice of religion, of our religion. So there's a distinction between religious toleration, we do not believe in that, and religious liberty. Everywhere and in every age that any religion, or none at all, has ruled where religion has ruled, liberty of conscience has been crushed, and slavery in one form or another has prevailed. I'll say that again. Brother John was more or less referring in the reading that he read to us today at the table. Uh, this is this is the inevitable of where infant baptism, the doctrine of infant baptism, 
goes. It goes to the corruption of the church. That's what he was reading about. But it, of course, it uh, marries, if you please, it marries itself into the civil government and civil law becomes, uh, we, we wind up with religious toleration instead of religious liberty. Let me make my statement again. Everywhere and in every age that any other religion or no religion at all has ruled in the civil government, liberty of conscience has been crushed and slavery in one form or another has prevailed. Everywhere, everywhere throughout history that religion has governed or rather if you prefer to say it the government has ordained itself over religion the dictates of religion that government will result in slavery slavery of the citizenry in one form or another for sure inevitably invariably now Jeter said introduces Jeter introduces the the scope and weightiness of our topic in these words uh, number 120 in his book he introduces the matter this way he says the liberty to worship God according to the dictates of conscience is the dearest of all human rights. That it should ever have been denied is one of the strongest proofs of human fallibility. <laughs> Certain it is, however, that a little more than two centuries ago, now he was writing in about 1875, and he said a little more than two centuries ago, Almost all religions, Catholic, Greek, and Protestant, maintained that either the civil or the ecclesiastical power had the right to regulate the public worship of God, and that all persons subject to its jurisdiction were bound under pain of fines, imprisonment, and death uh, death itself, were bound in its most appalling forms to comply with the prescribed regulations. Anywhere that religion has dominated, has controlled, then it has used these means to guarantee its own success and preservation. It has used imprisonment, fines, and death itself. In the early ages, Christians suffered severely from their heathen rulers because they persistently worshipped Christ and labored to bring the world into subjection to his authority. After Christianity gained the ascendancy and the churches were consolidated into a hierarchy and invested with secular authority, the church invested with secular authority 
or were able to control it at least through its subservient minions, the acceptance of its creed and conformity to its rites, worship and decrees, were enforced with an intolerance and severity which exceeded even pagan ferocity. Nothing but rule by force. The history of Romanism is a heart-rending record of spiritual tyranny. Chains, dungeons, tortures, and fires. When the churches of Northern Europe threw off the papal yoke along with many important reforms which they introduced, they retained, they retained the intolerant views and spirit of their recent rulers. That's why you may have heard Baptists, some Baptists make a big deal and say, we are not reformed. We were never a part of the Reformation movement. We were not identified with the reformers. The reason you would hear things like that said, the, the basis of those kind of statements is that that they want to uh, identify as Baptists. We declare ourselves not to have been in that train of those who threw off Roman rule, but nevertheless retained the same theories and theologies and philosophies of that the church should govern the civil the civil uh, affairs and that men would be subject to the discipline of the church in the civil realm. That's what they believe. When the churches of Northern Europe threw off the papal yoke, they retained the intolerant views and spirit of their recent rulers. Romanists claiming infallibility had the plea, at least they had the plea of consistency for their persecutions because they claimed they were infallible. While Protestants, admitting their liability to error, had not that sorry defense for their relentless cruelties to those who called in question their spiritual authority or dissented from their religious creeds. Jeter saying at least the Roman church was consistent. They believed themselves to be infallible. Therefore, they had, they believed they had a right to demand absolute power of control in civil government. But he says Protestants who pulled out of the Roman Catholic church have no defense. They are men that are subject to error and gladly admit it. How dare they carry with them this idea of religious rule. Then he said the Protestant sects of the 16th century, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians, invested with civil authority or able to influence secular rulers were intolerant and carried their tyranny not only to fines and confiscation but to imprisonment, torture, and blood. Protestants. Even the independents, that's capital I, even the independents 
who fled from the persecutions of the English Episcopalians to the wilds of America deemed it their duty to cherish the spirit and imitate the example of their oppressors. In the a simple way to say that, in short, is that in the early days of inhabiting this continent uh, from England, the idea of liberty as we now know it was not brought with them. They brought with them the ideas that they had already had in their country. Protestant, formally speaking, reformed views concerning this matter of civil liberty. But Baptists, I say to you this morning, this afternoon, Baptists have never, never swerved from this principle of religious liberty. Jeter says, Baptists under all the names which they have borne in different countries and in different centuries have been unswervingly loyal to the principle of religious liberty. Whatever may have been their faults, and they have neither been infallible in judgment nor irreproachable in conduct, but whatever their faults, they have been free from the guilt of persecution. True Baptists have never been guilty of persecution. They have not only been the earnest advocates of religious liberty, but they have supported it in its fullest extent. They have not only claimed it for themselves, but have accorded it to others, Jews and pagans, as well as Christians. This has been a Baptist, this has been a Baptist conviction forever. And it remains so. We have never violated it in our doctrine throughout the history of Baptist Baptist doctrine. I mentioned to you last week and read just the first line of this paragraph here out of Wayland, and I gave you my caveat. No fan of Wayland, Francis Francis Wayland. But in his book, and speaking of liberty of conscience, he had this to say, which is worthy. He said, the right of private judgment has been so generally advocated by Protestants that it does not require any special note. The doctrine of perfect liberty of conscience and the entire separation of church from state may, however, deserve remark. It is too well known that in no country of Europe was this doctrine practically acknowledged. Practically speaking, this doctrine was never acknowledged. In our own country, its progress was steady, irresistible, though it is only within a few years that its last vestiges have been erased from the soil of New England. Now this was 1857. He's writing. 
And he says it's only recently that, uh, at least in terms of government states, governments, constitutions, laws, that the vestiges of this this uh, intolerant view have been erased. It is strange to observe how deeply the notion becomes engraved on the mind of a dominant sect that religion cannot be supported unless it is sustained by the civil arm. When this question was agitated in the convention that formed the present Constitution of Massachusetts as late as 1820, almost all the Orthodox clergy were in favor of the provision by which every citizen was obliged to support Congregationalism unless he could produce a certificate that he paid taxes to some other sect. In the most distinguished seat of theological learning in New England, every professor but one favored this opinion. In 1820, as late as 1820. Then he says the effect of Baptist theory and practice in correcting the opinions of the public on this most important question cannot, I think, be doubted. They in Virginia, Massachusetts, Connecticut protested against all civil differences on account of religious belief and boldly asserted that this was a subject which did not come under the jurisdiction of the magistrate. They have at last prevailed and the principles of Roger Williams now bear undisputed sway from the St. Lawrence to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So says he. So, even after much later in our national history, the vestiges of this wretched doctrine of, of a church government, the church governing civil law, those vestiges remain for quite a long time afterwards. Crawl, William Crawl, in his uh, book, his book, uh, The Church Member's Manual, has a little section on civil government. He says, every particular form of civil government is a human institution. But the duty of yielding obedience to that under which we live is enforced by the positive precepts of Christianity and by the example of the Savior and his apostles. We are taught that civil government is an ordinance of God, that resistance to it is resisting the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, Romans 18, 1-7. The duty of contributing for the support of government is also taught in verse 6 and 7, and prayer for kings and all in authority is in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Ministers are commanded to inculcate obedience to rulers and to magistrates in Titus 3 and verse 1. At the same time, obedience 
to civil rulers or laws is not a duty when that obedience is contrary to the law of God. Very simply put in the quaint words of Lester Olaf, when bad men make bad laws, it's the duty of good men to break them. <laughs> I understand that strong. But God's law is supreme over civil government. And as he said, civil government is always an institution of men. It is not the form of government then, but the fact, it's not the form of government, but the fact of its existence that renders obedience a duty. Every Christian should be a peaceable and quiet citizen. If he lives under a government in which he has a voice in the choice of civil rulers, he's bound to give it in the favor of just men who will rule in the fear of God. A Christian is at liberty to hold an office in the state, provided its duties are not inconsistent with morality and piety. From these passages and from all the teachings of Scripture on the subject, it is evident that the just rights and powers of civil government are all confined to temporal matters. Civil government, civil government has no right to interfere in the least with religion, either with doctrines, forms of worship, administration of ordinances, or appointment of ministers. These are things which God has set, seen fit to lead to the free action of the human mind and the human conscience. If men, under the pretense of religious zeal, infringe on the right of other citizens, they may be restrained or punished. As for any other crime against the peace and order of society. But for their religious opinions and practices, they are accountable to God alone. Now, that last statement and the way he put that is probably the best summation of our view. As to civil violations, civil Laws and civil obedience, we submit ourselves. The scriptures teach us, the scriptures teach us to submit ourselves to these authorities. But in matters of our faith, our doctrine, and our practice of our religion, the state has no right to speak, and we have no obligation to obey. Again, referring back to Lester Orloff in 1970, he said that some of the young men in the seminary, he, of course, at that time was in the battle of his life for the liberty to continue to practice, open uh, those children's homes in Texas, which he had operated for decades before there were any laws governing them. When the laws came along, they tried, of course, to shut him down and enforce them. And some of the young seminarians came to him when he was there at school and asked him the question, Brother Roloff, I thought God said that we're to submit ourselves to the higher powers. 
aren't you violating the law of the Lord by fighting the state of Texas? And Brother Roloff simply said, Son, it's not the higher powers that are giving me trouble. It's these lower powers. Well, there you have it. That's our doctrine put in practical terms. We have an authority with regard to our practice of our faith that supersedes the law of any land. Any land. We submit ourselves to the law of the land regarding our civil lives, but not our faith. Now, we'll quit there today and examine the details of this doctrine more closely uh, in future lecture. We'll go back to this. We're not done. We're going to examine the details of it somewhat later, but this gives you the generality of our doctrine of religious liberty civil uh, in the civil world. There is, there are books written and I have them. Uh, I haven't read them in a good while. I did read them all years ago. There are a number of books men who have taken up to write on the subject of how much Baptist influence, Baptist doctrine influenced the constitutional uh, writings of the Constitution and and uh, the writing of various state constitutions and how uh, we have today the practice, the, the laws that exist, how very much of that is Credited to the influence of Baptists back then. Uh, quite a bit has been written on it. I wouldn't dare attempt to go into it. Maybe we could uh, prevail upon Brother Gormley to put us together a brief lecture just to touch the highlights of how, how much of that is traceable, that is directly Baptist influence on civil government to give us to maintain these liberties, to, to allow us in this country to have these liberties, which, as one Jeter pointed out, they did not have where they came from. They did not have them. And we, Baptist influence here, was able to secure liberty unknown to any other country. And uh, that's important part of our history.